This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature, with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book, Season 2, Episode 9, How to Read Dylan Thomas. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. Today's topic is the Anglo-Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, 1914-1953. to One thing you might notice about those dates I just read is that Dylan Thomas lived a very short life. But in that short time, he managed to write some of the most extraordinarily memorable and beautiful poems in the English language. And in this episode, I'll do an analysis of three of those poems. Namely, The Force That Through the Green Fuse Drives the Flower, Fern Hill, and Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. A fourth poem, In My Craft or Sullen Art, is actually covered in a YouTube video I've done in the past about how to annotate poems. The link to that video is in the show notes. But before I analyze these poems, I'll take you through a bit of background history about Dylan Thomas's life and times. I called Thomas an Anglo-Welsh poet because although he was born in Swansea, South Wales in 1914, He was raised to love and admire English poetry. Jack Thomas, his father, taught English literature at a grammar school in Swansea and taught Dylan the rules of poetic meter. So Dylan Thomas spent many an evening living with his parents in suburban Swansea, filling notebooks with his meticulously numbered poetic experiments and exercises. He wrote more than 200 of these altogether, including about half of the 90 poems that he published in his lifetime. Among them is The Force That Through the Green Fuse Drives the Flower, which he published two days after his 19th birthday. Meanwhile, he spent his childhood summers at a family farm in the rural county of Carmarthenshire in southwest Wales, memories of which became the subject of his best-known poem, Fern Hill. Although Thomas wrote exclusively in English, he wrote virtually all of his poems in Wales, so we can still describe him as a hybrid Anglo-Welsh poet. He lived for extended periods in London and in Oxfordshire, and he traveled in Italy and America, yet he never managed to write poetry there, as if there was something in the Welsh landscape that he found conducive to his poetry. In fact, after his early and most productive years, Thomas never managed to write enough at all. He was often short of money, relying on the charity of friends, and what proceeds he did get for his writing, for instance, writing scripts for the BBC, he tended to spend on alcohol. Thomas indulged in his image as a loose and feckless man of appetites for drink, for food, and for extramarital affairs after he was married in 1937. His poetry and his writing for broadcast earned him an international reputation. So, in the 1950s, Dylan Thomas went on three tours of America, where he gave public readings, and he threw himself into yet more debauchery. But it ultimately caught up with him on his third trip in 1953, when he died in New York from a cluster of ailments caused by his heavy drinking, a few days after his 39th birthday. 
What's most tragic about Thomas's early death, just a year, by the way, after his father's death, which he memorialized in Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, is this. Had he matured into his poetic vocation and moved past subjects like nostalgia and childhood memories, he could have written so much more. But the 90 poems that he did leave us, along with the radio play Under Milkwood and the recording of A Child's Christmas in Wales, are the legacy of a poet who's holding fast to his evocative memories of an idyllic, idealized past, a world that was eclipsed by the Second World War, in a country that few of his readers and audiences in England and America would ever visit, a Wales of the mind, built in the alien language of its English neighbor. In The Force That Threw the Green Fuse Drives the Flower, one of Thomas's first poems ever published, you can see some of the themes that recur in a lot of his other poetry, particularly, for instance, the connection between nature and the body. Thomas describes how the natural world, or rather the forces that, as he puts it, drive the natural world, also powers and propels forward his own bodily strength and abilities, while at the same time puts him in mind of the death that will come for him through the same power that moves nature through its change. Now, rather than listen to me read it, let's listen to Dylan Thomas himself. This is actually from one of his 1950s tours of America, in which the New York Times remarked that, quote, he will surely be remembered as the first in modern literature to be both a maker and speaker of poetry. The typical reader will become entranced after hearing him recite. But don't just take their word for it. Judge for yourself. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my green age. That blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. And I am dumb to tell the crooked rose my youth is bent by the same wintry fever. The force that drives the water through the rocks drives my red blood, that dries the mouthing streams, turns mine to wax. And I am dumb to mouth unto my veins how at the mountain spring the same mouth sucks. The hand that whirls the water in the pool stirs the quicksand that ropes the blowing wind, hauls my shroud sail. And I am dumb to tell the hanging man how of my clay is made the hangman's lime. The lips of time leach to the fountain head. Love drips and gathers, but the fallen blood shall calm her sores. And I am dumb to tell a weather's wind how time has ticked a heaven round the stars. And I am dumb to tell the lover's tomb 
How at my sheet goes the same crooked worm. There are a lot of things to notice about this early poem. Let's start with the very ending, the way that the final stanza repeats this refrain, and I am dumb, which means I am incapable of saying or speaking. But it lacks the three lines that precede it in every other instance. There is something just in a refrain like that that seems powerful, that seems like something you really should be paying attention to. Well, clearly it is because it's being repeated so many times. But one of the things that I'm really struck by in this poem is the way that he's, he's structuring a sequential series of examples or maybe a sequential argument or cumulative argument. But he's doing it entirely through, notice, the varying line lengths, which are in each of the three line sets quite long for the first two lines of, of really the same length, more or less, and then really short for the third line, just four syllables in each instance. And additionally, the other thing I notice is that the repetitions of And I Am Dumb as the sort of refrain that begins the final two lines, those repetitions punctuate the poem repeatedly, obviously, but they are doing the work of that, that, that rhyme might otherwise do. I didn't actually notice until reading this poem a couple of times that none of the final words in any of the stanzas rhyme with each other, or rather any of the lines. There are some possible, maybe, line, uh, rhymes. Flower, destroyer, perhaps. Rocks, wax, maybe. But not really. If anything, these are imperfect rhymes, like tomb and worm, right at the end of the poem. And so this is a poem unlike any other, in the sense that it's a, using some of the conventions of rhyming poetry, like a refrain, as I said, and also these uh, shorter lines, but not rhyme. Let's look at some of the other patterns that recur. You have the force in line one, the force again, line six. And amidst those, there's been a transition or an addition of uh, certain diction or word choices like age, like blood, like veins that are referring to his body. And then he refers to the hand and the lips. Now, these are not his own, but allusions to an angel in the first instance, as the note in the Norton Anthology tells you, and then a personification or an allegory of time in the second instance. He is also, in the first stanza, setting up this tension between creating or fueling something and destroying it drives the flower, drives my green age, that is, propels and powers it, that blasts is my destroyer. So the same force, the same source of power is both enabling and also destroying. It's deliberately ambiguous what it is. Is it divine force? Is it some innate natural force that both grows a green fuse, which I think of as a tiny little green sapling, and then the root being of the tree, which is a far more mature version of that sapling being blasted and destroyed. Similarly, this crooked rose, which has bent over with age, has been both enabled and, and grown and created through this force, but also this wintry fever, 
has brought it low, has brought it to its end, its death. It's just one among many of the tensions, or it's one version of this sort of core tension that recurs in multiple varieties, and this multivariate tension that uh, is propelling the whole poem. We have another sort of contrast or tension again in the second stanza, driving the water, drives the blood, but also dries it up. The contrast is clearly between moisture and dryness. This, this odd image in line 10 of, of sucking at the spring with your mouth is repeated, by the way, in line 16. The lips of time leech to the fountainhead. So leech as a verb means it to sort of adhere to and, and suck all of the moisture, all of the life, all of the blood, literally in a leech's case, out of this source, this wellspring of water. Or perhaps of blood, because the fallen blood in the next line is clearly obviously linked to the blood in in line seven. The water in the pool versus the quicksand, this is line 11 and 12, is another tension we should be aware of because as the note tells us, the water is curative, thank you footnote, and the quicksand is the sand that you can fall into and that that will kill you, that will pull you beneath its surface. We have then the introduction of the blowing wind, which is going to repeat from lines in lines 12 and in line 19, a weather's wind. This is the introduction of another element. So we have the force, which again, it feels like this kind of liquid, uh, but also this windy force. So it's, it's driven the flower, it's blasted the roots, it's destroyed as kind of a, a force that is elemental in some indeterminate way. But then we've moved into the actual element of water and then of blood. We move then finally to the state of, of, this, of air in the form of wind. And it hauls his shroud sail. The shroud being the burial shroud, which is echoing line 22, my sheet. The third stanza is to me the most complex, I guess you could say. They're all very complex, but, but look at the way that the, the hand that ropes the blowing wind in line 12 feels like a, a reference to sailing on water because you have the shroud sail, okay? But then you have a hanging man in the next line. We're still conscious that he's mentioned rope a moment ago. So now the rope that was used for the sail, not the same one, but a, a, a similarly uh, dual functional force object thing it is capable of both roping the wind and hanging a person. The point is, I suppose, broadly speaking, everything is involved in each other. My clay, the physicality of my body, the force, the, the vigor of my body is also made of the same stuff that quickens and hastens the decomposition of that hanging man's body. And so Thomas is really deliberately juxtaposing and jumbling together both the creative and capturing forces of elements and of things like the rope and of my clay and also, of course, of me, the living speaker of this poem, and the nature that I am involved with, that runs through my veins, is all around me, but I am also of it, and it is of me. And we get this kind of culmination 
in the final reference to the lover's tomb, which is itself a tension. We would tend to think of the, the, the lover's bed, but this is the love and death being conjoined. When the lover dies, they go to a tomb, and I myself, just like the hanging man decomposing, I will be eaten by the crooked worm. Which to me feels like a reference to William Blake's poem, The Sick Rose, the rose whose invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm, whose dark secret love doth thy life destroy. Finally, the question that I struggle with in this poem is why am I dumb? Why am I incapable of saying these things? saying to the rose that I will die like you, saying to my veins that I suck from the same mountain springs, saying to the wind that time is wheeling around us both. What's fascinating to me about a poem like this is that one so creative and so evocative and so full of imagery and tensions is ultimately saying that it lacks the power to capture what it wishes to say, that it is incapable of reconciling all of these oppositions. This next poem that we'll look at, Fern Hill, is, I have to confess, one of my favorite poems by Dylan Thomas, certainly my favorite of these three. And it's not just because it's really long and complicated. In fact, it's probably, I would say, because the tone of this poem shifts so imperceptibly. It shifts from this beautifully nostalgic depiction of a time that he is remembering again, from this rural retreat that he would go to in his summers while he was young, to now recognizing that that time was limited. But it's not even as simple as that. It's way more complicated and more beautiful than that. I think what really sums up the complication for me is this really surprising word. The most unexpected word in the entire poem comes in the last line. It's the word chains. He has, it, you discover, he has been singing in his chains like the sea. Which is still a word I, I think about every time I read this poem again. And I still can't quite figure out what it's doing. I believe that it means that he was enchained or entrapped by his human body, his human self. Or maybe that's a bit too glib. Maybe it's that he was chained to time. That time is inexorable, inescapable, that it's the condition that we all suffer under. And he sang in it. That he was joyful and full of pleasure and, and carefree heedlessness, like the sea. I won't even go into that simile. There's just, there's too many layers. So let's, let's just read this poem. Let me now read it to you. And I will try to keep going uh, the whole way through and not interrupt myself and say, and sort of get enthusiastic about what he's doing. But for the closing stanzas, I will hand things over to Dylan Thomas to finish them. So let's begin. Fernhill. Now, as I was young and easy under the apple boughs about the lilting house, and happy as the grass was green, 
the night above the dingle starry, Time let me hail and climb golden in the heydays of his eyes. And honored among wagons, I was prince of the apple towns. And once, below a time, I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, famous among the barns about the happy yard, and singing as the farm was home in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be golden in the mercy of his means. And green and golden I was huntsman and herdsman, the calves sang to my horn, the foxes on the hills barked clear and loud, and the Sabbath rang slowly in the pebbles of the holy streams. All the sun long it was running, it was lovely. The hay fields high as the house, the tunes from the chimneys, it was air and playing, lovely and watery and fire green as grass. And nightly under the simple stars, as I rode to sleep, the owls were bearing the farm away. All the moon long I heard, blessed among stables, the night jars flying with the ricks, and the horses flashing into the dark. And then to awake, and the farm, like a wanderer white with the dew, come back, the cock on his shoulder. It was all shining. It was Adam and Maiden. The sky gathered again, and the sun grew round that very day. So it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise. And honored among foxes and pheasants by the gay house under the new-made clouds and happy as the heart was long in the sun born over and over I ran my heedless ways. My wishes raced through the house high hay, and nothing I cared at my sky-blue trades that time allows in all his tuneful turning so few and such morning songs before the children green and golden follow him out of grace. Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand in the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. Well, that recording is far clearer than the other one, isn't it? And makes you realize, just for a moment, or makes you recognize just how extraordinary it would be to hear Dylan Thomas read this aloud, to hear it and to be there. 
it gives me goosebumps. Now, this is a poem that I cannot possibly do justice to. I literally have cross-references and circles and scribbles all up and down my margins, and there are so many places where words are getting repeated and images are getting repeated. So I'm going to try not to do this analysis for the next 25 minutes. I will try only to say some of the most important stuff that I noticed, and I'll give you some hints on, again, how to read a poem like this. The first thing that you might do is think, what do I know about Dylan Thomas? And you know now a couple of things about his life. You also know the other sorts of poems that he writes. You know that the force that through the green fuse drives the flower also talks about the word green. And so there's something about the power of nature and natural imagery that Thomas is going to use again here in a powerful way. And he does. If you were to put this whole poem into, say, a word cloud, you would see words like green come up as one of the words that gets repeated most of the times, certainly more than any other word, I think. So one of the first things I notice about this poem is just how casual the register is. I mean, that is to say the tone. I mean, it starts with the word now. Now, as I was this, and then there's a lot of lines that begin with the word and. So that kind of propels you forward and draws you in. It has this way, it kind of reminds me of Seamus Heaney has this translation of Beowulf, and he begins the word with the word so. Like all stories begin with so in Ireland, in, in Heaney's Ireland. So this was happening, and it's kind of this induction or this invitation. Now, as I was young and easy, begins this poem, and it sort of feels like uh, he's telling a story, which he is, sort of. He's telling you a story through a lot of different images. And the story, in this case, is the story of time. Time is personified. Line four. Time let me hail and climb golden in the heydays of his eyes. And his is in line five. It's repeated again in uh, line 14, golden in the mercy of his means. And then uh, time returns again, uh, certainly in line 46. Time would take me by the shadow of my hand. An image that I'm not sure I understand about the shadow. And of course, time has that uh, place in the uh, penultimate line, the second last line, held me green and dying. So it's repetitions like that uh, of the structure of the story that he's telling, of the, the role of time that you should be noticing. You should be noticing words that get repeated and nodes, words that uh, have a certain meaning like that. The time has this agency and the time's agency in his story changes as he moves forward in the poem. He also moves forward in time and in his understanding of what time has done. There are plenty of other patterns that you could be noticing. You could notice, for example, the way that he conjoins words together, young and easy, hail and climb, even trees and leaves, daisies and barley. That's just in the first uh, stanza. Then you have green and carefree, green and golden, green and green as grass. Later on, green and green and dying is a structure that's going to repeat a lot of places. So green, what does that word mean? You think you know what it means, don't you? You think it means something like the color. If you know anything about Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream and other plays like that, other comedies like As You Like It, you know that green also means an alternate world, an alternate space, a space of youth and of possibility and of growth. 
It also means naive. It also means fresh. It's one of those words that whose whose meaning has changed so much over time, and who which can take on all sorts of other connotations. A classic case, by the way, of a word whose denotation denotative meaning in the dictionary is different from its connotative meaning in usage. Another thing I noticed in the opening stanza, and you could notice, is the way that he is talking about how he felt elevated, honored, prince, and lordly. Those are all similar-sounding words in lines 6 and 7. You should be connecting words like that. You also should take note uh, that there are lots of different um, words, particularly starting around line 15, of all of the different creatures, the animals, the horses, the birds, the foxes and pheasants, etc., etc., that are all surrounding him in this natural place. Another thing that I kept seeing was just the repetition of, of the word. It's a very simple word, was. I was. Now, now as I was young and easy, line one, and as I was green and carefree, line 10, line 15, I was huntsman and herdsman, line 19, it was, it was twice, and then again on line 20, we have it was repeated a number of times, it comes back again on 29, on 30, etc., And I guess the effect of all of those is to, again, make it sound like this is a story he is telling. It was like this. I was this. I was this. I was here. I was there. It was lovely. And then something starts to emerge, a pattern of or of religious language. We have on line 17 this unexpected word Sabbath, which means the seventh day, the day of rest. And then... Line 30, Adam and Maiden, with a reference to the Garden of Eve in the Eve in the Christian creation myth. And it starts to make you see how the sun, which is starting to be repeated quite a few times, I guess it begins at 32, I could be wrong. It also is repeated on 39. The, this is also a reference to God's creation of the sun, just with his words let there be light in the King James Version. And so so it must have been, I'm looking at 33, it's so it must have been after the birth of the simple light and the first spinning place. This is a reference to the Garden of Eden. And so the fields of praise uh, and the in line 45, uh, follow him out of grace. These are words that have religious connotations involved in devotional practices. And so it feels like, for him, nature is a kind of communion with the divine. Now, around uh, line 37 in the penultimate stanza, that's where I switched over to Thomas. Firstly, because I wanted you to hear his lilting Welsh way of speaking and reciting, because it's not mine. Mine is a bit more sort of naturalistic. But also because there's something tonally that really shifts. Now, I say that because I know how it's going to end. And I noticed that tonal shift only on reading this poem, probably for the fifth time or thereabouts. And it's starting to see how it means that I started to recognize that when he says things like, I ran my heedless ways. Heedless is a word that you tend to mean that means something like reckless. And so it means heedless of what is what I ask, the heedless of, uh, of something about carelessness. 
heedless of some impending danger. Again, line 46, nothing I cared, which is reminiscent of line 42, the carelessness. I didn't care that time would take me up to the swallow throng loft by the shadow in the moon, etc. I didn't care about that because I didn't predict it. I didn't think about it. The repetition of the phrase young and easy from line one is repeated in line 52. Because his means were merciful, there's another religious word, the mercy being the ignorance that he, time, granted me, even though I was dying. So the shift is toward a melancholic tone rather than a nostalgic one. And so, in summary, what you get in this poem is a beautiful evocation of a a lost time and place, a lost feeling of potential, a lost feeling of carelessness and of joy in simple things, in natural things, that he can see, he the speaker, and Dylan Thomas, I suppose, is co-identified with the speaker in this case, he can see this through the lens of time. He can see his former ignorance, his former innocence, his former ignorance, for example, of things like death and the impending changes that were coming for him. And the ultimate tone is one of gratitude for the grace and, again, mercy of time giving him this moment of his life. The word green, Dylan Thomas's favorite word, is going to repeat again in Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night to, in order to contrast the age of his dying father with the youth that he has surpassed or given up. Let's read it and then do some analysis. The first thing to say before I read it, by the way, is that the form of this poem is called a villanelle. Now, this is a form that unlike the first poem we read, The Force That Threw the Green Fuse, does have a very constrained rhyme scheme. It has five tercets, which are these three-line stanzas rhyming A-B-A, and then one final quatrain rhyming A-B-A-A. So it's a 19-line structure. It also has these two refrains. Notice how Uh, He repeats certain lines repeatedly all the way through. So he has refrains, as we have seen in the previous poem, but it has a tighter rhyme scheme. Here's the poem, start to finish. Do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words had forknote lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, 
Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. There's an interesting core tension, even in the very title of this poem, in that refrain that gets repeated so many times. It's that you sh it, although the night is good and you accept that death is good and necessary and even perhaps a return to God then that and thus good, that you shouldn't gently accept it. In other words, the expectation might be that you gently melt away into the goodness of, say, your creator, but you should not. He Im impugns, or rather, he importunes his father not to give up, not to go gently. That again, repeating the metaphor, at the close of day in line two, old age should burn and rave. It should be furious. It should be resistant. And he then begins this series in all of these tercets of comparisons with his father, between his father and these other men, wise men in the first, or rather the second tercet, good men in the third, wild men in the fourth, and grave men in the fifth, before he returns to you, my father there on the sad height in the final quatrain. It's important to notice that kind of pattern when you read, that you have different forms of descriptors, that is this sort of catalog that he's going through, wise, good, wild, and grave. The next thing to do is to note for each of those types, each of those contrasts that he's setting up, what are the comparative, what are the descriptors that he's going to use for each of them? So, for instance, what is the reason that a wise man would not go gentle? Because if he were wise, he would know, yes, although he would know that dark is right, there's something inevitable about death, their words had forked no lightning. In other words, there were things that their words were incapable of doing yet, and so they are resistant to that imposition on their powers. Comparatively speaking, good men who are looking at the, the, the last wave by in this green bait, so there's all these water metaphors, uh, they recognize that their frail deeds are inadequate to have danced, that is to have pleased God, I believe. And consequently, they rage against its, the death that is, that is inevitable. Then you have wild men, which I think might mean pagans, those who sang the sun in flight, who were perhaps worshippers of the sun, were also grieving it on its way, recognizing they didn't, all too late, they've recognized that as they were praising a thing, they were also seeing its impending death. They too should rage. Finally, then, the grave men. A descriptor that puts me in mind of Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet, who says, as he's dying, to he says to Romeo, if you come tomorrow, you should find me a grave man, which is a sort of dark humor. Uh, grave meaning sober and prepared for death and serious, etc. They see suddenly that their blind eyes could have visions of things that would blaze like meteors. And they similarly, because of the power of those visions, rage against the dying of the light. And finally, he then return, turns to his father and says that he's effectively indifferent. Curse or bless me, either way, just use the faculties that still remain in your power and rage against this death.
And so Dylan Thomas, then, in all three of these poems, collapses together the power to create and to destroy, to remember the greenness of his youth and the potentiality, but also that with every breath that he was calling to the calves with his horn and the foxes on the hills and Fern Hill, with every breath he was still merely singing in his chains, that he was like W.B. Yeats a few episodes ago in Sailing to Byzantium. He was sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. He was both green and dying. And ultimately, despite Dylan Thomas's early death that I lament so much, in the days that he had and in the lines that he wrote, he lived them appreciatively and fully and completely, and he raged against the dying of his own light. You've been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. The next episode is on Samuel Beckett's mid-century existentialist drama, Waiting for Godot which I promise is unlike anything you have ever read. Meanwhile, search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my surname U-L-L-Y-O-T or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can also find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Goodreads in descending order of regularity. And then there's good old-fashioned email, Elliot at UCalgary, that's U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Goldberg Variations Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka. Mm-hmm.